Hello, folks. Welcome back to the 20th episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and oftentimes confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of sources and cultures. Today, we'll be finishing our look at Beowulf for real this time. I know I said that we'd finish it last time, but we will really be finishing it this time, in fact. And this myth comes to us from the edge of Christian Scandinavia and pre-Christian Scandinavia, potentially written in England, potentially written in Denmark. And if you want to learn about the history of pre-Christian Scandinavia and the Viking slash Varangian age, please do go check out episode 18, which is the first episode of Beowulf. And in fact, I suggest checking out both of these episodes so that you can see where the story is right now. If for some reason you've taken a break between these episodes and you've already seen them but need a refresher, I'll give a refresher in just a moment. Join me today on a journey into the past and the present. A voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. So when last we left off with Beowulf, Beowulf had just killed Grendel's mother, had come out of that marsh that he had gone into, and was being celebrated by Hrothgar, and he had just returned to his homeland of the Geats. And it is there that the rest of the story takes place. And we also are going to see a significant shift in the themes that are present within the text. As this hero grows older, as they fight more battles, there is a toll that that takes. And similar to other hero myths, there is oftentimes a sojourn at the end related to death, as heroes and warriors would often die. This section of the myth would be a way for a culture to make sense of the death of someone very powerful in their society, the death of perhaps a king or other aristocratic or just a, a warrior kind of person. It feels strange just jumping right into the myth, but let's do it. Let's get into it so that we can make sense of the ending of Beowulf.
Then Beowulf and his men went walking along the shore, down the broad strip of sand. The world's bright candle shone, hurrying up from the south. It was a short journey from their ship to Higlok's home, to the hall where their king, Ongentho's killer, lived with his warriors and gave treasures away. They walked quickly. The young king knew they were back, Beowulf and his handful of brave men, come safely home. He sat, now, waiting to see them, to greet his battle comrades when they arrived at his court. They came, and when Beowulf had bowed to his lord and standing in front of the throne had solemnly spoken loyal words, Higlok ordered him to sit at his side. He who had survived sailed home victorious next to his kinsmen and king. Mead cups were filled, and Hareth's daughter took them through the hall, carried ale to her husband's comrades. Higlok, unable to stay silent, anxious to know how Beowulf's adventure had gone, began to question him, courteous but eager to be told everything. Beloved Beowulf, tell us what your trip to far-off places brought you, your sudden expedition on the salty waves, your search for war in Herat. Did you end Hrothgar's hopeless misery? Could you help that glorious king? Grendel's savagery lay heavy on my heart, but I was afraid to let you go to him. For a long time I held you here, kept you safe, forced you to make the Danes fight their own battles. God be praised that my eyes have beheld you once more unharmed. Beowulf spoke, Aedgetho's brave son. My lord Higlok, my meeting with Grendel in the nighttime battle we fought are known to everyone in Denmark, where the monster was once the uncrowned ruler, murdering and eating Hrothgar's men, forever bringing them misery, where the monster was once the uncrowned ruler, murdering and eating Hrothgar's people, forever bringing them misery. I ended his reign, avenged his crimes so completely in the crashing darkness that not even the oldest of his evil kind will ever boast, lying in sin and deceit, that the monster beat me. I sought out Hrothgar, first came to him in his hall, when Hilfdane's famous son heard that I'd come to challenge Grendel. He gave me a seat of honor alongside his son. His followers were drinking. I joined their feast, sat with that band as bright and loud-tongued as any I've ever seen. His famous queen went back and forth, hurrying the cup-bearing boys, giving bracelets and rings to her husband's warriors. I heard the oldest soldiers of all calling for ale from Hrothgar's daughter's hands, and Freya was the way they greeted her when she gave them the golden cups. And Hrothgar will give her to Ingeld, gracious Froda's son. She and that ripening soldier will be married. The Dane's great lord and protector has declared, hoping that his quarrel with the Hathobards can be settled by a woman. He's wrong. How many wars have been put to rest in a prince's bed? Few. A bride can bring a little peace, make spears silent for a time, but not long. Ingeld and all his men will be drinking in the hall. When the wedding is done and Freya is his wife, 
The Danes will be wearing gleaming armor and ring-marked old swords, and the prince and his people will remember those treasures, will remember that their fathers once wore them, fell with those helmets on their heads, those swords in their hands. And seeing their ancestral armor and weapons, Ingeld and his followers will be angry. And one of his soldiers, sitting with ale in his cup and bitterness heavy in his heart, will remember war and death. And while he sits and talks, his sharp old tongue will begin to tempt some younger warrior, pushing and probing for a new war. That sword... That precious old blade over there, I think you know it, friend. Your father carried it, fought with it the last time he could swing a sword. The Danes killed him and many more of our men, and stripped the dead bodies, the brave, bold Danes. One of the princess's people here. Now might be the murderer's son, boasting about his treasures, his ancient armor, which ought to be yours by right. Bitter words will work in a hot-tempered brain pushing up thoughts of the past, and then, when he can, calling his father's name, the youngster will kill some innocent Dane, a servant, and bloody sword in hand will run from the hall, knowing his way through the woods. But war will begin as he runs, to the sound of broken oaths, and its heat will dry up Ingeld's heart, leave him indifferent to his Danish bride. Hrothgar may think the Hathobards love him, Loving Freya, but the friendship cannot last. The vows are worthless. But of Grendel, you need to know more to know anything. You need to know more to know everything. I ought to go on. It was early in the evening. Heaven's jewel had slid to its rest, and the jealous monster planning murder came seeking us out, stalking us as we guarded Hrothgar's hall. Honshu, Sleeping in his armor was the first geat he reached. Grendel seized him, tore him apart, swallowed him down, feet and all as fate had decreed. A glorious young soldier killed in his prime. Yet Grendel had only begun his bloody work, meant to leave us with his belly and his pouch both full, and Herat half empty. Then he tested his strength against mine, hand to hand. His pouch hung at his side, a huge bag sewn from a dragon's skin, worked with a devil's skill. It was closed by a marvelous clasp. The monster intended to take me, put me inside, save me for another meal. He was bold and strong, but once I stood on my feet, his strength was useless, and it failed him. The whole tale of how I killed him, Repaid him in kind, for all the evil he'd done would take too long. Your people, my prince, were honored in the doing. He escaped, found a few minutes of life, but his hand, his whole right arm, stayed in Herat. The miserable creature crept away, dropped to the bottom of his lake, half dead as he fell. When the sun had returned, the Dane's great king poured out treasure. Repaid me in hammered gold for the bloody battle I'd fought in his name. He ordered a feast. There were songs and the telling of tales. One ancient Dane told of long-dead times, and sometimes Hrothgar himself, with the harp in his lap, stroked its silvery strings and told wonderful stories. 
a brave king, reciting unhappy truths about good and evil, and sometimes he wove his stories on the mournful thread of old age, remembering buried strength and the battles it had won. He would weep, the old king, wise with many winters, remembering what he'd done once, what he'd seen, what he knew. And so we sat the day away, feasting. Then darkness fell again, and Grendel's mother was waiting, ready for revenge, hating the Danes for her son's death. The monstrous hag succeeded, burst boldly into Herat and killed Aesher, one of the king's oldest and wisest soldiers. But when the sun shone once more, the death-weary Danes could not build a pyre and burn his beloved body, lay him on flaming logs, return ashes to dust. She'd carried away his corpse, brought it to her den deep in the water. Hrothgar had wept for many of his men, but this time his heart melted. This was the worst. He begged me, in your name, half weeping as he spoke, to seek still greater glory deep in the swirling waves, to win still higher fame and the gifts he would give me. Down in that surging lake I sought and found her, the horrid hag. Fierce and wild we fought, clutching and grasping. The water ran red with blood, and at last, with a mighty sword that had hung on the hall, I cut off her head. I had barely escaped with my life. My death was not written. And the Dane's protector, Hilfdane's great son, heaped up treasures and precious jewels to reward me. He lived his life as a good king must. I lost nothing, none of the gifts my strength could have earned me. He opened his store of gems and armor, let me choose as I liked so I could bring his riches to you, my ruler and prove his friendship and my love. Your favor still governs my life. I have almost no family, Higlock, almost no one now but you. Then Beowulf ordered them to bring in the boarhead banner, the towering helmet, the ancient silvery armor, and the gold-carved sword. This war gear was Hrothgar's reward, my gift from his wise old hands. He wanted me to tell you, first, whose treasures these were. Hergar had owned them, his older brother, who was king of Denmark until death gave Hrothgar the throne. But Hergar kept them, would not give them to her word, his brave young son, though the boy had proved his loyalty. These are yours. May they serve you well. And after the gleaming armor, four horses were led in, Four bays, swift and all alike. Beowulf had brought his king horses and treasure, as a man must, not weaving nets of malice for his comrades, preparing their death in the dark with secret cunning tricks. Higlock trusted his nephew, leaned on his strength in war, each of them intent on the other's joy, and Beowulf gave Velthau's gift, her wonderful necklace to Hegid, Higlock's queen, and gave her also three supple, graceful, saddle-bright horses. She received his presence, then wore that wonderful jewel on her breast. So Edgatho's son proved himself, did as a famous soldier must do if glory is what he seeks, 
not killing his comrades in drunken rages, his heart, not savage, but guarding God's gracious gift, his strength using it only in war and then using it bravely. And yet, as a boy, he was scorned. The Geats considered him worthless. When he sat in their mead hall, and their lord was making men rich, he held no claim on the king's goodwill. They were sure he was lazy, noble but slow. The world spun round. He was a warrior more famous than any, and all the insults were wiped out. Then Heglock, protector of his people, brought in his father's, Beowulf's grandfather's great sword, worked in gold. None of the Geats could boast of a better weapon. He laid it in Beowulf's lap, then gave him seven thousand hides of land, houses and ground and all. Geatland was home for both king and prince. Their fathers had left them buildings and fields, but Heglock's inheritance stretched further. It was he who was king and was followed afterwards in the time when Heglock was dead and Herdred, his son who'd ruled the Geats and his father had followed him into darkness, killed in battle with the Swedes who smashed his shield, cut through the soldiers surrounding their king. Then, when Hegid's one son was gone, Beowulf ruled in Geatland, took the throne he'd refused once and held it long and well. He was old with years and wisdom, fifty winters a king, when a dragon awoke from its darkness and dreams and brought terror to his people. The beast had slept in a huge stone tower with a hidden path beneath. A man stumbled on the entrance, went in, discovered the ancient treasure, the pagan jewels and gold the dragon had been guarding, and dazzled and greedy stole a gem-studded cup and fled. But now the dragon hid nothing, neither the theft nor itself. It swept through the darkness, and all Geatland knew its anger. Let's take a brief moment here to analyze the previous sections as well as the introduction of the dragon. So we have a few references here to future events and past events within these last couple of pages. This comes from the fact that this story was written at a very specific time and it's been transcribed. So it's possible that the original manuscript did not talk about these future happenings referring to what would end up happening to Beowulf and Geatland and the battle with the Swedes. It's unclear. We really don't know. But I do think it's interesting that we have both these really old past stories, ancient stories, and then we have the present story of Beowulf in the text and the future stories of what would end up happening to Beowulf, uh, what would end up happening to Geatland ultimately. The dragon is a continuation of the anti-Semitism that we've been seeing in this text. I'm not going to pussyfoot around it. This is the reality of the text. I, I've taken a little time between each episode to reflect on what I thought about my analysis, and I've only become more certain that these monsters are the representation of Jews that the Scandinavians believed was real. They used these monstrous visages, these depictions, to demonize my people. Because there were Jews, certainly in Eastern Europe at this time, although probably in Germany as well, a lot of different areas where 
the Scandinavians probably would have entered and uh, pillaged and raided, potentially colonized. And so there would have been a knowledge by the point of certainly this transcription, but probably even the original writing of Beowulf of the Jews. And the thing is, is that at this early time, there would not have been these ideas about wealth yet necessarily. And so I, I am limited in what I can really say here. We don't know how anti-Semitism functioned in this really early point. The way that I'm constructing this is based on how these monsters are described and their relation to specifically Jewish myths. The dragon, to me, is the most questionable of these because you could just read the dragon as somebody with a lot of money or power. But this reading actually doesn't work within Beowulf. And this is why I think that this dragon, too, is a representation of Jewish people. People like Hrothgar and uh, Higlock give gold regularly. And, oh, wait. Okay, I just realized something. The main difference between these different characters is that the positive characters are seen giving their gold away, whereas the dragon clearly doesn't want to give its, dra its dragon hoard, its gold, away. And this has to do with the concept of greed, of course, which has traditionally been associated with anti-Semitism as a methodology to demonize Jewish people who are even doing slightly well for themselves. This is true of my ancestors, and this is true of people today. The dragon, of course, is not defined. And this is one of the powers of the monster for uh, both people who are oppressed and people who commit oppression. Because when you create a monster, it obfuscates what you really mean. But the aesthetics and the vibe, the real propagandizing parts of these stories, of these monsters, still comes through. Someone might read this story, in fact, I think most people read this story, and don't read Grendel or Grendel's mother or this dragon as jibes at Jewish people. And maybe this is my modern lens messing with the way I am reading the myth. You can certainly have that critique. But I think it would be foolish to not consider what these monsters mean. Let's take an example of a monster that is pretty well-defined, the Wendigo. The Wendigo is a monster found throughout different, I think mostly Northeastern uh, Native American tribes. And I could be wrong on the exact location of where this monster was popular in myth. It's pretty well understood that this monster is a representation of greed but not in the same way as Grendel or Grendel's mother or, in this case, the dragon. The Wendigo is representative of greed to death, not greed to satiation, as we see with these monsters in Beowulf. The Wendigo will continue eating until it has eaten all of the plants, all of the humans, all of the animals, all of the fungi, all of the rocks, all of the dirt, all of the earth, all of the universe. It will eat everything until it must eat itself. It's a representation of the horror of greed as a concept. It's not demonizing any one specific people. 
It might be calling out specific tribes that might have acted in more greedy ways if it was uh, specifically positioned at a, at a time and with certain aesthetics. See, that's the thing with these monsters is they get to very real problems in human reality. I'm not going to pretend like violence and the begetting of violent people is a good thing because it's not. And that is also something that Grendel and Grendel's mother represents. However, comma, we cannot just ignore the aesthetics related to these people. We can't ignore the references to Cain and Abel. We can't ignore the references to matrilineal ancestry. And now we cannot just forget that this dragon is the final conflict, the ultimate conflict. And so if these purveyors of violence that existed before were no ultimate violence that could not be bested by Beowulf, then this dragon represents something beyond what Beowulf can even attempt. Note the extreme amount of time that passed. Here, let me read. I think it, it literally says it in one sentence. Their king, then, when Hegid's one son was gone, Beowulf ruled in Geatland, took the throne he'd refused once and held it long and well. He was old with years and wisdom, fifty winters a king, when a dragon awoke from its darkness and dreams and brought terror to his people. Alright, so Beowulf is now at least fifty winters a king. So if we assume that Beowulf was at his like prime and was like maybe 22, he would be 72 in this second section of the myth. Beowulf must come into contact with a more metaphorical, metaphysical issue, right? We had the moment of let's fight, right? <laughs> let's fight physically. And now there is a more existential threat. The threat of people hoarding wealth, of not sharing things. Now, there's nothing wrong with using a monster to describe this idea. The reason I think that it is ultimately anti-Semitic as well is because we must question who that dragon is representative of, right? If we do show a dragon today, it's probably not an anti-Semitic dragon. <laughs> That's what an odd statement. Uh, it's probably a dragon trying to represent the extreme levels of capitalist wealth that we see today. In the story of Beowulf, the people with the most power are the kings. The people with the most wealth are the kings. So why is the dragon set up in opposition to the kings? Is the dragon a foreign king? You perhaps could that have that reading. Is the dragon a foreign presence within the country? Well, that reads pretty well, considering that the shadow and darkness spoken of here and dreams suggest a latent force sitting dormant within the land of the Geats, suggesting that there is a people there that may have not been liked very much, perhaps the Jews. Now, this is all speculation. I don't even really know if there were Jewish people living in Scandinavia at this point. So all of this is very speculative. I will say that they definitely had contact with Jewish people, though, because we know that Jews were living in Eastern Europe at this time. So make no mistake here, there is certainly anti-Semitism, but I think it also goes to show the ways in which anti-Semitism, at the most basal level, at the most subtle level, is very hard to detect, 
I'll bet that most of you probably couldn't even really detect anti-Semitism when you see it in real life. Because trust me, I have lived through that. I guess now is as good a time as any to tell you my personal experience with anti-Semitism because I think it's important for you to understand where I'm coming from when I'm reading perhaps a little too in-depth about what these myths are saying. Because you gotta understand where I'm coming from because I have a lot of bad experiences with anti-Semitism. When I was in high school, which would have been around like 2015 or 2016 was when this was happening to me, I lived in Ohio, in Southwestern Ohio, I've said that before, in Cincinnati. And it was kind of like a little rural area. It wasn't extremely rural, but it wasn't extremely suburban. It was somewhere in between. There were different communities of people. There was a big class divide. I was from a pretty middle class part of the area, but there were people that lived on a hill that were very, 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 very rich. And then there were people who lived below that hill who were very poor. And so we had this very representative sample of class within my high school, but not as much in race. There were maybe four people of color that went to that school, maybe more. But out of the people that I met regularly who were people of color, which I'm including Asian people, black people, Indian people. I don't even know if there were any Indian people at the school, which is nuts because Cincinnati has a pretty big Indian population. Nonetheless, it was a very, very predominantly white WASP school. It was full of white Anglo-Saxon Christian Protestants. It was full of them. And Catholics, a lot of Catholics too. Probably some Irish people. Um, but there were not many Jews. One of my best friends to this day is a Jew that I met at that school, in elementary school. We met in like first grade. And we stayed friends somewhat because, I think, of that shared experience. I mean, there was a lot of things that kept us together, but I think that we bonded over that, certainly in late junior high, early high school. And I just want to tell you that we experienced some of, I think we experienced more anti-Semitism than like, we are even sometimes willing to admit. It's kind of hard for me to tell this story because it's, it's so intense that I, I can't even believe it happened. So let me just tell it. So during like sophomore or sophomore year, or maybe junior year of high school, maybe even freshman year, we decided that, you know, we wanted to celebrate our Jewish heritage. And we started celebrating more Jewish holidays. I come from a pretty like agnostic family. So we never really celebrated anything other than Hanukkah uh, in, in, and, and Christmas. We, we would do we would switch off sometimes or we'd do one or the other or do both sometimes with Hanukkah. We wouldn't do many presents, but you know, th that kind of thing. We had, it was a very uh, diverse set of beliefs that I was exposed to at a young age. I'm very glad to have, have that experience. But long story short, I, I wanted to accept this part of myself that I just really hadn't reckoned with and thought about. And so me and my friend, we created a little... I wouldn't call it a club. It was more just like we were open all of a sudden about being Jewish. It was like we came out as being Jewish. And, you know, we'd talk about it with people. We really would at our school. Because I don't think we had this understanding that there was opposition to people being Jewish. 
you know, we, we'd had little moments of talking about Judaism in school, you know, like, oh, the dreidel. They do dreidel at Hanukkah. It's like, yeah, we, I guess. <laughs> and then they'd play the dreidel song and, you know, you'd cringe inside because it's all in English and you're like, oof, that does not sound right. Um, but as soon as we started doing this, there was actually opposition. And I was, I don't think we fully th thought about what that meant at the time, but we really were putting ourselves in danger. I, I really do believe that because there were people in that school who were neo-Nazis, straight up, like not joking around. I might have told this once before, but I, I, in my senior year, I was weightlifting for, for some reason. I took this weightlifting class. It was good. I actually got into a good shape and it was, it was great. But the, there's this guy who, who was in the class who had a swastika tattooed on his left bicep. I, I just thought to myself, like, what if this guy figures out I'm a Jew? Well, what's going to happen then? Am I going to get shot? Am I going to get slapped? Am I going to get thrown into a dumpster? What's going to happen to me? I literally was so scared in, in those times of, of, of weightlifting. It was not a good experience. But when we came out as Jewish, there was a secondary group. I, I'm like having trouble even saying this because it's so scary that this happened. There was a secondary group, about five people, which was, I should say, double, almost, double plus a, yeah, double, which was double of how many Jews were out about being Jewish in this school. There might have been more people who had Jewish heritage. They just weren't open about it. These five people created, I'm going to say it, a, a Nazi club. That's what it was. It was, they, they joked, quote unquote joked, about being Nazis and hating us. Was that funny to them? Was it? And some of these people like knew us. They had known us for a long time. Some of them from elementary school. So if you wanna tell me that there is not anti-Semitism going on in the modern day, and that I'm reading too deep into these things, then tell me that the neo-Nazis will not turn on you in a second. That if you show your face, if you truly show them who you are, that they will not turn on you, that they will not want to kill you, that they will not at least joke about wanting to kill you, which is just as bad. Let's be real here. I'll finish this anecdote by saying that I walked by, and I don't think my friend saw this. I think I'm the only person who, who saw this, but it's, uh, it weighs heavy on my mind. This would have been 2016, so the year that Trump was elected. I was walking out to my car, as I did. I would leave early on, I think, Wednesdays, and it was an early day, and I was walking. I had, I had left my class a little early, so I was, I, there were people milling around in the lobby. And in this public place, this place full of people, three kids raised their right hand and said, Hail Hitler. And they laughed. And I just walked by. Because what was I supposed to do? Turn to them and say, you can't do that. You can't fucking do that. I don't know. Those experiences, they make me really think about what people think of me. And I, I really do think that they spurred a lot of my social anxiety and my personal generalized anxiety of, of, of people are thinking and, and what they might do. Every single day, 
I would have to think about how to get out the quickest if something were to go down. If someone wanted to kill me or if a school shooter came in there. And yeah, I mean, that's something that everyone has to think about now, but I felt targeted. And I'm sure my friend did as well. We haven't really fully talked about this, I don't think, um, for a long while. Maybe we did at some point, I can't remember. It weighs heavily. And I want you to remember that if you're listening to this right now, I, you need to know that joking about this stuff, it hurts people. It makes people scared. If you joke about being a Nazi, about wanting to kill my people, fuck you. Fuck you and all that you stand for. It's not funny. It never has been funny. And these representations of Jews that we are seeing even more now, the rising anti-Semitism, it is so deep, so buried in people from Europe that it exists in what is on the back of this book saying Beowulf is the earliest extant poem in a modern European language. This is what we have to deal with from the very base. We must reform how we think about other people, how we construct monsters, how we understand the very foundations of morality. Because nobody should be greedy. I'm not going to pretend like people who have billions of dollars are good. They are not. But make no mistake, those people are not Jews. Let's continue. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. And we will talk about anti-Semitism more because there's more overt instances of it throughout different myths. And honestly, I've been, I've been meaning to make something that covers anti-Semitism in the modern day in more depth recently. I don't know. I have lots of ideas that I come up with and I'm like, maybe I should do that. And I, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Like this is one idea that I, I have actually acted on making this myth podcast. And I, sometimes I fear that the, what I choose to do is, is, is the fun thing and not the hard thing. And maybe that's messed up that I have to think about that. Because I'm sure that most of the white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, Christian, whatever people that I went to school with in high, in high school, they don't think about the content they put out in the world. They aren't. They're probably just posting TikToks of them looking pretty, you know, dancing or, or doing something, making, saying a joke or something. I'm sure some of them are thinking very hard about what, what, what they care about and all of that, but I can't help but feel that the... I don't know, Jake Pauls of the world are creating the discourse of how we talk about life. And it's sad. It saddens me that, that people don't think as much about what they put out and what they make. And But the thief had not come to steal. He stole and roused the dragon, not from desire, but need. He was someone's slave, had been beaten by his masters, had run from all men's sight, but with no place to hide. Then he found the hidden path and used it, and once inside, seeing the sleeping beast, staring as it yawned and stretched, not wanting to wake it, terror struck. He turned and ran for his life, taking the jeweled cup. 
That tower was heaped high with hidden treasure, stored there years before by the last survivor of a noble race. Ancient riches left in the darkness at the end of a dynasty came. Death had taken them, one by one, and the warrior who watched over all that remained mourned their fate, expecting soon the same for himself, knowing the gold and jewels he had guarded so long could not bring him pleasure much longer. He brought the precious cups, the armor and the ancient swords to a stone tower built near the sea. Below a cliff, a sealed fortress with no windows, no doors, waves in front of it, rocks behind. Then he spoke. Take these treasures, Earth, now that no one living can enjoy them. They were yours in the beginning. Allow them to return. War and terror have swept away my people. Shut their eyes to delight and to living. Close the door to all gladness. No one is left to lift these swords. Polish these jeweled cups. No one leads. No one follows. These hammered helmets, worked with gold, will tarnish and crack. The hands that should clean and polish them are still forever. And these mail shirts, worn in battle once, while swords crashed and blades bit into shields and men, will rust away like the warriors who owned them. None of these treasures will travel to distant lands following their lords. The harp's bright song, the hawk crossing through the hall on its swift wings, the stallion tramping in the courtyard, all gone, creatures of every kind and their masters hurled to the gravel. And so he spoke sadly of those long dead, and lived from day to day, joyless until at last death touched his heart and took him too. And a stalker in the night, a flaming dragon, found the treasure unguarded. He whom men fear came flying through the darkness, wrapped in fire, seeking caves and stone-split ruins, but finding gold. Then it stayed, buried itself with heathen silver and jewels it could neither use nor ever abandon. So mankind's enemy, the mighty beast, slept in those stone walls for hundreds of years. A runaway slave roused it, stole a jeweled cup and brought his master's forgiveness, begged for mercy and was pardoned when his delighted lord took the present he bore, turned it in his hands and stared at the ancient carvings. The cup brought peace to a slave, pleased his master, but stirred a dragon's anger. It turned, hunting the thief's tracks, and found them, saw where its visitor had come and gone. He'd survived, had come close enough to touch its scaly head and yet lived, as it lifted its cavernous jaws through the grace of Almighty God and a pair of quiet, quick-moving feet. The dragon followed his steps, anxious to find the man who had robbed it of silver and sleep. It circled around and around the tower, determined to catch him, but could not. He had run too fast. The wilderness was empty. The beast went back to its treasure, planning a bloody revenge, and found what was missing, saw what thieving hands had stolen. Then it crouched on the stones, counting off the hours till the Almighty's candle went out. And evening came, and wild with anger it could fly burning across the land, killing and destroying with its breath. Then the sun was gone, and its heart was glad. Glowing with rage, it left the tower, impatient to repay its enemies. The people suffered. Everyone lived in terror. 
But when Beowulf had learned of their trouble, his fate was worse and came quickly. Now it's interesting here. I'm going to take another little break to talk a little more about this dragon. So the dragon is associated with the concept of the heathen, of the pagan. Once again, another connection with anti-Semitism, as most Jews, especially of the time and throughout the Middle Ages, would have been considered pagans by Christians. We also see that th this dragon's gold is ill-begotten, another anti-Semitic trope of when Jewish people get rich, it is from thievery, from fraud. Well, this is another way to demonize Jewish people. And sure, you can say that this dragon, oh, it's just a dragon story. This isn't what you think it is. And you can have that reading. That is a viable, valid reading. But I want to multiply and make confusing what you might be seeing as just a simple story. Because this monster, this dragon, represents something. And to me, it's pretty clear that this is representative of some sort of foreign force, once again, coming in, stealing noble gold from a previous king or previous structure fraudulently, and then terrorizing a people for no reason. I mean, that's just part of the monster trope rather than the anti-Semitic tropes. It's hard, to, it's hard to parse these tropes because there's multiple tropes going on here because the dragon exists as both dragon and human. In the same way we talk about God, in the same way as we talk about the concepts surrounding spirituality and the more you know, higher level, like a spiritual plane, soul, and all of, all of these terms, they are intrinsically human. These ideas are meant to communicate something to humanity as a whole. A monster is a very specific way to communicate those ideas via obscuring, not via direct communication. Now, obfuscation and the obscuring of straightforward ideas is a common motif within mythology and religion as a whole. I don't think that we should just see that as a bad thing. In fact, some of the most interesting ideas are rather hidden in myth. So let's not just view every single obfuscated monster as a formation of a human being to be demonized. I don't think that's the case. In fact, I was considering that this construction of the dragon would work quite well as a representation of Rome. If Rome had actually reached Scandinavia, but they didn't, I'd love to be able to say that this dragon is representative of the Roman conquest that had happened earlier. But this is too far apart. There is too significant of a separation, and the history just doesn't support it. I'd like to be able to say that. I'd like to be able to say that this is not an anti-Semitic dragon. But unfortunately, that is, I think, what it is. There's no one else to demonize here. I suppose you could say that it's just demonizing people who have a lot of wealth, but I think that fails to completely understand the references to slavery as well. The people in Europe often called Jewish beliefs a slave's religion. We talked about that briefly when we discussed Ireland and the history of Ireland in episode... I can't remember. It's, it's the one called the Shian Ganon and the Gruagagar. I think it's like 14... Maybe something like that. 
the people of Europe understood, and in this way I do think that they're, they're pretty true, that their own reality, their own life, was not as defined by slavery as the Jewish people's history. I mean, if you think about why us Jews even wrote down the Torah in the first place, it's mostly to remember our history, explain to people what exile feels like, explain that sometimes we got to get out of slavery in whatever way you need to, you know, the typical Moses thing, and to discuss, you know, spiritual law and all. There's a lot of different reasons as well. But the primary purpose was history at the time. And this is well considered within dialogues of about the Torah, pretty close to the time of its writing. We can see that here, that this history does not translate to Scandinavia as much. There were certainly slaves had within Norway's structure, but they themselves were not slaves, they were slavers. And so we can see that there is a lack of understanding here. The slave that goes and wakes the dragon, there is a, 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 an association there as well. Vomiting fire and smoke, the dragon burned down their homes. They watched in horror as the flames rose up. The angry monster meant to leave nothing alive, and the signs of its anger flickered and glowed in the darkness. Visible for miles, tokens of its hate and cruelty spread like a warning to the Geats who had broken its rest. Then it hurried back to its tower, to its hidden treasure, before dawn could come. It had wrapped its flames around the Geats. Now it trusted in stone walls and its strength to protect it. But they would not. Then they came to Beowulf, their king, and announced that his hall, his throne, the best of buildings, had melted away in the dragon's burning breath. Their words brought misery. Beowulf's sorrow beat at his heart. He accused himself of breaking God's law, of bringing the Almighty's anger down on his people. Reproach pounded in his breast, gloomy and dark, and the world seemed a different place. But the hall was gone, the dragon's molten breath had licked across it, burned it to ashes near the shore it had guarded. The Geats deserved revenge. Beowulf, their leader and lord, began to plan it, ordered a battle shield shaped of iron, knowing that wood would be useless, that no linden shield could help him, protect him in the flaming heat of the beast's breath. That noble prince would end his days on earth soon, would leave this brief life, but would take the dragon with him, tear it from the heaped-up treasure it had guarded so long, and he'd go to it alone, scorning to lead soldiers against such an enemy. He saw nothing to fear, thought nothing of the beast's claws or wings or flaming jaws. He had fought before against worse odds, had survived, been victorious in harsher battles, Beginning in Herat, Hrothgar's unlucky hall, he'd killed Grendel and his mother, swept that murdering tribe away, and he'd fought in Hegloch's war with the Frisians, fought at his lord's side till a sword reached out and drank Hegloch's blood, till a blade swung in the rush of battle, killing the Geats' great king. Note the use of the word tribe there for Grendel and his mother. Hmm... They've never been referred to as, to as a tribe before this point. And you'll also note 
that, if you'll remember from our first episode, that the second portion of the myth, which we are certainly in now, was translated without some of the standardizations that would have been seen in the first section. So perhaps this reference to tribe belies the anti-Semitism that was in the first section of the myth. Because referring to them as a tribe is kind of weird considering they're two people and they were referred to exclusively as demons previously. Do the demons have a tribe? Are there more demons? There's never really been a direct association with the tribe here. It's also a way to demonize paganism uh, because tribes were associated with the pagan at this time as well. And really into the future they would be. And he'd fought in Heglock's war with the Frisians, fought at his lord's side till a sword reached out and drank Heglock's blood, till a blade swung in the rush of battle, killed the Geat's great king. Then Beowulf escaped, broke through Frisian shields and swam to freedom, saving thirty sets of armor from the scavenging Franks, river people who robbed the dead as they floated by. So this is referring to an event that is likely actually historical, which is a battle with the Franks, the people of France, uh, with Heglock. If you'll remember from our history, there was a pretty decisive defeat for the Vikings in France. They were regularly repelled after, they, uh, after a specific sect of the Vikings joined with the Normans and kept a lot of the other Vikings out of that region. So this is probably what this event is referring to. Beowulf offered them only his sword, and did so many jackal lives that the few who were able skulked silently home, glad to leave him. So Beowulf swam sadly back to Geatland, amongst almost the only survivor of a foolish war. Heglock's widow brought him the crown, offered him the kingdom, not trusting Herdred, her son, and Heglock's to beat off foreign invaders. But Beowulf refused to rule when his lord's own son was alive, and the leaderless Geats could choose a rightful king. He gave Herdred all his support, offering an open heart where Heglock's young son could see wisdom he still lacked himself. Warmth and goodwill were what Beowulf brought his new king. But Swedish exiles came, seeking protection. They were rebels against Donela, Hilfdane's son-in-law, and the best ring-giver his people had ever known. And Donela came too, a mighty king, marched on Geatland with a huge army. Herdred had given his word, and now he gave his life, shielding the Swedish strangers. Onela wanted nothing more. When Herdred had fallen, that famous warrior went back to Sweden. Let Beowulf rule. You can see here that the anti-Semitism that I've been talking about could maybe be described better as a xenophobia, a fear of the unknown, of the external, of the foreigner. Because we see here even a fear of the Swedes, a fear of exiles. And I think that that's pretty telling considering the prominent great migration or great replacement conspiracy theories still prevalent in the alt-right and conservative circles of Scandinavia, Germany, Europe in general. I think that it was all of this conflict at this time and with Rome that led to these xenophobic ideas being formed. I don't think that absolves people from xenophobia. I don't think that makes it right. 
but it does have a historical precedent. And that's what makes it so powerful and so lasting. Because if it exists in narrative, like here, if it exists in history, it's hard to get rid of these ideas. And ultimately, those ideas are what attack Jews. Anti-Semitism is just a form of xenophobia. So keep that in mind as we go on, and we'll talk about that a little more, probably, of just general xenophobia had throughout myths. Because there's a number of instances that you can find of explicit racism and xenophobia, or more subtle racism and xenophobia existing in a whole number of different myths and holy texts, pretty much for all of human history, even into the modern day. I've read some more modern texts recently, and I've been taken aback by still how xenophobic they are. I fear that we will never reach a point where we can accept that people are constantly migrating, constantly moving around, and that exile is a natural part of human society, human existence. If there is no one to take an exile, then can we really call ourselves countries? Can we really call ourselves people? I don't consider people who demonize others to really be human. I think that they have given themselves into something unhuman. And maybe that says a lot about my perspective, that I believe that humans are truly good and truly accepting, truly able to change. But Beowulf remembered how his king had been killed. As soon as he could, he lent the last of the Swedish rebels, soldiers, and gold, helped him to a bitter battle across the wide sea, where victory and revenge and the Swedish throne were won, and Onela was slain. So Edgitho's son survived, no matter what dangers he met, what battles he fought, brave and forever triumphant, till the day fate sent him to the dragon and sent him to death. A dozen warriors walked with their angry king when he was brought to the beast. Beowulf knew by then what had woken the monster and enraged it. The cup had come to him, traveled from dragon to slave to master to king, and the slave was their guide, had begun the Geat's affliction, and now, afraid of both beast and men, were forced to lead them to the monster's hidden home. Note, once again, the connection between dragon and slave, and then slave to master. The dragon is a primeval, primordial, primitive, pagan source of power. Note how that is directly associated with the slave here. At the time, it was believed that pagans, and ultimately Jews, because pagans were often associated with Jews, for some reason, once again, it doesn't make sense. We're not going to pretend like it makes sense because Jews literally worship the same God as Christians, but hey, racism and xenophobia work in confusing and often illogical ways. These ideas, these powers were associated with the slave, ultimately, the serf, because in this early feudal state, people, especially Jews and pagans, were often put into positions where they'd be working the farm or they'd be working as slaves. And because, obviously, these people didn't have any real physical power, what we would call hard power in political discourse, the powerful kings and princes and aristocrats and leaders of the time, needing a people to scapegoat to obfuscate their own hoarding of wealth, 
used the dragon, used the ideas of pagan power and the devil to demonize my people who are included in both pagan and uh, Jewish sects as that is where my people come from. We were not kings. Most European people were not kings. We're not upholding this system of white supremacy through their action. They had no power. And so if you right now today in your own life are a white person listening to this, you might not have these same associations that I have where I feel very empathetic towards these uh, Jews and pagans that are being demonized in this text. But I want you to reckon with the fact that your ancestors probably were those people. We cannot forget, most people are peasants. This goes for the modern day too. I'm not meaning that in a derogatory way. I'm trying to say that most of us do not make very much money. We do not have very much power. And so what we are seeing today is a reflection of the past. And what we see in the past is a reflection of the present. Just as the kings and aristocrats of this time period of the late 900s and early 1000s CE chose to create forms such as Grendel and Grendel's mother and the dragon to obfuscate from their own hoarding of wealth, we see the same powerful people or the same kind of powerful people using similar tactics. But now that people know that anti-Semitism is a thing and that xenophobia is a thing and racism is a thing, they choose to attack the people who have the least amount of power, who are easiest to make people fear. These are trans people who I also have a connection with being non-binary. And in that way, what is happening here is the same thing that is happening right now. Maybe that's why I feel so connected to Grendel and Grendel's mother and the dragon here because I'm used to being made into a monster. Because I think anybody that grows up reading literature and is politically savvy enough to actually listen to a bunch of different sources and figure out who is doing the xenophobia, who is doing the racism, who are the people who demonize others. Those are the people who can empathize with these old monsters. So question within yourself whether or not you yourself can empathize. Why can you not empathize? What is it that prevents us from seeing eye to eye with someone of a different skin color, of a different religion, of a different, different ethnic background, from a different country, with different cultural customs. What is it that prevents us from viewing them as not only just as a friend, but as someone that intrinsically needs to exist in our society just as much as you do? What is it? Is it a fear of a lack of unity? Is it the concept of purity? He showed them the huge stones set deep in the ground, with the sea beating on the rocks close by. Beowulf stared, listening to stories of the gold and riches heaped inside. Hidden but wakeful now, the dragon waited, ready to greet him, 
Gold and hammered armor have been buried in pleasanter places. While his soldiers wished him well, urged him on, but Beowulf's heart was heavy. His soul sensed how close fate had come, felt something, not fear, but knowledge of old age. His armor was strong, but his arm hung like his heart. Body and soul might part here. His blood might be spilled, his spirit torn from his flesh. Then he spoke. My early days were full of war, and I survived it all. I can remember everything. I was seven years old when Hrethel opened his home and his heart for me. When my king and lord took me from my father and kept me, taught me, gave me gold and pleasure, glad that I sat at his knee, and he never loved me less than any of his sons, Herbald, the oldest of all, or Haithseen, or Higlach, my lord. Herbald died a horrible death, killed while hunting. Hathseen, his brother, stretched his horn-tipped bow, sent an arrow flying, but missed his mark and hit Herbald instead, found him with a bloody point and pierced him through. The crime was great, the guilt was plain, but nothing could be done, no vengeance, no death to repay that death, no punishment, nothing. So with the greybeard whose son sins against the king and is hanged, he stands watching his child swing on the gallows, lamenting, helpless, while his flesh and blood hangs for the raven to pluck. He can raise his voice in sorrow, but revenge is impossible, and every morning he remembers how his son died and despairs. No son to come matters, no future heir to a father forced to live through such misery. The place where his son once dwelled, before death compelled him to journey away, is a windy wasteland, empty, cheerless. The childless father shudders seeing it. So writhes in ridden sleep in the ground, pleasure is gone. The harp is silent and hope is forgotten. And then, crying his sorrow, he crawls to his bed. The world and his home hurt him with their emptiness. And it seemed to Hrethel, when Herbald was dead, and his heart swelled with grief, the murderer yet lived. He felt no love for him now, but nothing could help. Word nor hand, nor sharp-honed blade, war nor hate, battle or blood or law, the pain could find no relief. He could only live with it, or leave grief and life together. When he'd gone to his grave, Hathseen and Higlok, his sons, inherited everything. Interestingly here, we see a retelling of the Cain and Abel myth without the names Cain and Abel. Uh, perhaps this is an older myth and why the idea of Cain and Abel was referenced previously, and this could be another syncretic mixture of different cultures that eventually coalesced into a doubled form of this myth, a doppelganger, repeated here with Scandinavian characters and a different outcome. The person who does wrong is not sympathized with at all. They are not seen as good. In the Jewish myth, exile is the ultimate pain of being forced to reckon with the fact you killed someone. What is done here is not true punishment. No, it does not empathize or even sympathize with the killer. Judgment must come from a place understanding both sides, but still reckoning with the weight 
of the evil done. This is what I believe personally. And it's why I believe in reforming our current day prison system. Because those that kill, those that do unspeakable acts, they should be forced into what amounts to exile, I believe. Whether that be an exile physically or an exile of the soul. Right now, an, an, a physical exile is probably not the best idea because there are people living everywhere on earth and this potentially dangerous person or person who has done evil could do evil unto others. So physical exile is no good anymore. Now what we need is mental exile, a, an exile of the soul. And to me, that is rehabilitation of forcing someone to understand what they did so fully, so intrinsically, that they hate themselves, that they are never okay with themselves again. That is what Cain dealt with. And that is ultimately what the Jewish people had to deal with. We had to deal with the fact that we would never be the same again. And that feeling is very empathetic for me. I often feel exiled in my life. I don't really know why. I'm, I've always felt pretty lonely, and a lot of my familial relationships and relatives are pretty far away from me, either physically or we're just not very close or don't talk ever. So I often feel like I am in exile, and that's okay. Like, I have so many people, so many wonderful ideas helping me, so many concepts. And to take that idea and just say, nope, you just kill them. It's somewhat silly because it refuses to actually reckon with that evil. It's limiting. Maybe it's also that the Brionic laws in Ireland around the same time were much more focused on rehabilitation. So it's clear that people in Europe did not all have this idea. We see a different construction of the end part of this myth of Cain and Abel or of Herbald and Hafseen because Hafseen just inherits everything, gets the entirety of the world for his evil. And once again, Anti-Semitism happens again. This retelling of Cain and Abel says that Cain, the killer, was, uh, should have been punished far more. That is what you get out of it. And because Cain and this idea is associated with Judaism, the idea of exile, right? Because the killer, Cain is very much related to Grendel, is related to Grendel's mother, is related to this concept of anti-Semitism that we've been talking about. We see that Hafsin is representative of how the Scandinavians actually viewed Jews. They viewed them as people who would just kill and take, which is so wrong. It's so wrong. And you can say, once again, you can say, Oh, this is just a moral lesson. And yes, it is. I don't disagree with you there. But you must reckon with the fact that we have a doubling of a myth. One that creates a monster, and the other demonstrating how that monster exists in human life. Now, that would be fine if we did not have all of these aesthetics 
of Jewishness going along with it. As we've seen, anti-Semitism at this very subtle level works in aesthetics and vague half-truths because anti-Semitism and racism is illogical. It does not have a rational structure. And so we cannot prove that, it's, that this is what it is. And this is perhaps why it's so difficult to talk about racism and anti-Semitism because unless it's very overt, it is almost impossible to prove that it is what is happening. I am analyzing this to demonstrate ways in which Beowulf could be anti-Semitic. Of course, you can disagree. But please, uh, do understand that I am trying to give this myth the benefit of the doubt. But it keeps adding to this issue. It keeps throwing more fuel my way. If I get wood to burn, I shall burn that wood. And then there was war between Geats and Swedes, bitter battles carried across the broad sea. When the mighty Hraethel slept and Ongintho's sons thought Sweden could safely attack, saw no use to pretending friendship but raided and burned, and near old Rendsburg slaughtered Geats with their thieving swords. My people repaid them, death for death, battle for battle, though one of the brothers brought that revenge with his life. Hathseen, king of the Geats, killed by a Swedish sword. But when dawn came, the slayer was slain, and Hegelok's soldiers avenged everything with the edge of their blades. Afor caught the Swedish king, cracked his helmet, split his skull, dropped him, pale and bleeding, to the ground, then put him to death with a swift stroke, shouting his joy. The gifts that Hegelok gave me, and the land I earned with my sword as fate allowed. He never needed Danes or Goths or Swedes. Soldiers and allies bought with gold, bribed to his side. My sword was better, and always his in every battle my place was in front, alone, and so it shall be forever. As long as this sword lasts, serves me in the future as it has served me before. So I killed de Graef, the Frank who brought death to Hegelok, and who looted his corpse. Hegid's necklace, Velthau's treasure, never came to de Graef's king. The thief fell in battle, but not on my blade. He was brave and strong, but I swept him in my arms, ground him against me till his bones broke, till his blood burst out. And now I shall fight for this treasure, fight with both hand and sword. And Beowulf uttered his final boast. I've never known fear as a youth. I fought in endless battles. I am old now, but I will fight again. Seek fame still if the dragon hiding in his tower dares to face me. Then he said farewell to his followers, each in his turn for the last time. I use no sword, no weapon, if this beast could be killed without it. Crushed to death like Grendel, gripped in my hands and torn limb from limb. But his breath will be burning hot, poison will pour from his tongue. I feel no shame with shield and sword and armor against this monster. When he comes to me, I mean to stand, not run from his shooting flames. Stand till fate decides which of us wins. My heart is firm, my hands calm. 
I need no hot words. Wait for me close by, my friends. We shall see soon who will survive this bloody battle. Stand when the fighting is done. No one else could do what I mean to here. No man but me could hope to defeat this monster. No one could try. And this dragon's treasure, his gold and everything hidden in that tower will be mine, or war will sweep me to a bitter death. Then Beowulf arose, still brave, still strong, and with his shield at his side and a mail shirt on his breast, strode calmly, confidently toward the tower under the rocky cliffs. No coward could have walked there. And then he who'd endured dozens of desperate battles, who'd stood boldly while swords and shields clashed, the best of kings, saw huge stone arches and felt the heat of the dragon's breath flooding down through the hidden entrance. Too hot for anyone to stand, a streaming current of fire and smoke that blocked all passage. And the Geats, lord and leader, angry, lowered his sword and roared out a battle cry, a call so loud and clear that it reached through the hoary rock, hung in the dragon's ear. The beast rose, angry, knowing a man had come, and then nothing but war could have followed. Its breath came first, a steaming cloud pouring from the stone, then the earth itself shook. Beowulf swung his shield into place, held it in front of him, facing the entrance. The dragon coiled and uncoiled, its heart urging it into battle. Beowulf's ancient sword was waiting, unsheathed, his sharp and gleaming blade. The beast came yet closer. Both of them were ready, each set on slaughter. The Geat's great prince stood firm, unmoving, prepared behind his high shield, waiting in his shining armor. The monster came quickly toward him, pouring out fire and smoke, hurrying to its fate. Flames beat at the iron shield, and for a time it held, protected Beowulf as he'd planned. Then it began to melt, and for the first time in his life that famous prince fought with fate against him, with glory denied him. He knew it, but he raised his sword and struck at the dragon's scaly hide. The ancient blade broke, bit into the monster's skin, drew blood but cracked, and failed him before it went deep enough, helped him less than he needed." The dragon leapt with pain, thrashed and beat at him, sprouting murderous flames, spreading them everywhere. And the Geat's ring-giver did not boast of glorious victories in other wars. His weapon had failed him, deserted him, now when he needed it most, that excellent sword. Aedgitho's famous son stared at death, unwilling to leave this world, to exchange it for a dwelling in some distant place, a journey into darkness that all men must take, as death ends their few brief hours on earth. So you can see here that this is not particularly Christian. There's momentary suggestions of glory, but once again, this secondary portion of the myth is less Christian and more pagan. And this reference to a place beyond is notably not heaven. Why it isn't translated to heaven by the likely Christian scholar is likely just a oversight by that scholar. However, 
it does allow us to see that there was another understanding of the afterlife present in Norse mythology prior to the Christianization that is so prevalent throughout this story. I also want to draw your attention to the idea of the glory of God or glory for God. It's this idea that would eventually lead explorers in the 1500s and 1600s and 1700s and 1800s and 1900s to kill and enslave millions of people. This idea is where it stems from because this is our earliest reference point to those ideas. At least in Europe, uh, it might have existed in other texts and small poems and that, and that kind of idea, as well as within the Roman structures of the Roman Catholic Church, as it was almost certainly influenced by that. However, this is the moment where England as well, because remember, uh, the Dane law in Jorvik or York, they uptake this idea of the glory of God. So do the Franks who were colonized by the Vikings. These ideas fundamentally were being forced into every realm of European thought at the time, quite forcibly as well. There were lots of pagans still at this time, and a lot of them were being killed. If you look up the history of pagans in Europe, it is filled with genocides, just as much as the Jews. These genocides were often called pogroms, P-O-G-R-O-M-S. A very little known word, but it's one that is extremely important to the history of Europe. These pogroms were found throughout Europe, but they were most prevalent, I believe, in Eastern Europe. I could be wrong on that. I think, and that might have been later points in time. That might have been in like uh, more modern European history that those pogroms were occurring. My ancestors came to America because of a Russian pogrom in Ukraine, a, an attempt by Russian czars to limit the influence of not only paganism, but Judaism in the region. And they killed my people, and so we left in fear for our lives. That is the history of Jewishness and paganism in these areas. So you see why it is so important to point out not only the anti-Semitism and anti-paganism that is present throughout this story, but also the idea of the glory of God, because these people who were pushing this Christianization saw their attempt to Christianize Europe as part of God's glory. They saw it as a conquest. And the same goes for colonization in the modern day, in the neo-colonial world. Missionaries still see themselves as such, and oftentimes soldiers see themselves as such, as crusaders. I mean, we can talk about the crusades at some later point, not now, but there's a lot of ideas that stem from this one simple idea of glory. And it's been all over the place throughout this myth. We haven't fully explored it yet because it was more in reference to individual battles, and it still is to some extent here. But this idea of glory is so messed up because it comes at the expense of other people. One can only get glory if they prove themselves stronger, more powerful, and force others into either death or slavery. Those are your options to get glory. I don't like those options. Those are bad options. 
Can we have better options for glory? Please. The idea of gaining wealth and converting people to religion, of course, also goes with the idea of God's glory. Quickly, the dragon came at him, encouraged as Beowulf fell back. Its breath flared, and he suffered, wrapped around in swirling flames, a king before, but now a beaten warrior. None of his comrades came to him, helped him. His brave and noble followers, they ran for their lives, fled deep in a wood, and only one of them remained, stood there, miserable, remembering as a good man must what kinship must mean. His name was Vilaf. He was Vekstan's son and a good soldier. His family had been Swedish once. Watching Beowulf, he could see how his king was suffering, burning, remembering everything his lord and cousin had given him, armor and gold and the great estates Vekstan's family enjoyed. Viglaf's mind was made up. He raised his yellow shield and drew his sword, an ancient weapon that had once belonged to Onela's nephew and that Vekstan had won, killing the prince when he fled from Sweden, sought safety with Herdred, and found death. And Viglaf's father had carried the dead man's armor and his sword to Onela, and the king had said nothing, only given him armor and sword and all, everything his rebel nephew had owned and lost when he left this life, and Vekstan had kept those shining gifts, held them for years, waiting for his son to use them, wear them as honorably and as well as once his father had done. Then Vekstan died, and Viglaf was his heir, inherited treasures and weapons and land. He'd never worn that armor, fought with that sword until Beowulf called him to his side, led him into war. But his soul did not melt. His sword was strong. The dragon discovered his courage and his weapon. When the rush of battle brought them together, and Viglaf, his heart heavy, uttered the kind of words his comrades deserved. I remember how we sat in the mead hall drinking and boasting of how brave we'd been when Beowulf needed us. He who gave us these swords and armor, all of us swore to repay him when the time came. Kindness for kindness with our lives, if he needed them. He allowed us to join him, chose us from all his great army, thinking our boasting words had some weight, believing our promises, trusting our swords. He took us for soldiers, for men. He meant to kill this monster himself, our mighty king. Fight this battle alone and unaided, as in the days when his strength and daring dazzled men's eyes. But those days are over and gone, and now our soldier must lean on younger arms. And we must go to him, while angry flames burn at his flesh, help our glorious king. By almighty God, I'd rather burn myself than see flames swirling around my lord. And who are we to carry home our shields before we've slain his enemy and ours, to run back to our homes with Beowulf so hard-pressed here? I swear that nothing he ever did deserved an end like this, dying miserably and alone, butchered by this savage beast. We swore that these swords and armor were each for us all. Then he ran to his king, crying encouragement as he dove through the dragon's deadly fumes. Beloved Beowulf, 
Remember how you boasted once that nothing in the world would ever destroy your fame? Fight to keep it now. Be strong and be brave, my noble king, protecting life and fame together. My sword will fight at your side. The dragon heard him, the man-hating monster, and was angry. Shining with surging flames, it came for him, anxious to return his visit. Waves of fire swept at his shield, and the edge began to burn. His mail shirt could not help him, but before his hands dropped the blazing wood, Vigloff jumped behind Beowulf's shield. His own was burned to ashes. Then the famous old hero, remembering days of glory, lifted what was left of Nagling, his ancient sword, and swung it with all his strength, smashed the gray blade into the beast's head. But then Nagling broke to pieces, as iron always had in Beowulf's hands. His arms were too strong. The hardest blade could not help him. The most wonderfully worked, he carried them to war. But fate had decreed that the Geat's great king would be no better for any weapon. Then the monster charged again, vomiting fire, wild with pain, rushed out fierce and dreadful, its fear forgotten. Watching for its chance, it drove its tusks into Beowulf's neck. He staggered. The blood came flooding forth, fell like rain. And then, when Beowulf needed him most, Vigloff showed his courage, his strength and skill, and the boldness he was born with. Ignoring the dragon's head, he helped his lord by striking lower down. The sword sank in, his hand was burned, but the shining blade had done its work. The dragon's belching flames began to flicker and die away. And Beowulf drew his battle-sharp dagger. The blood-stained old king still knew what he was doing. Quickly, he cut the beast in half, slit it apart. It fell. Their courage had killed it. Two noble cousins had joined in the dragon's death. Yet what they did, all men must do when their time comes. But the triumph was the last Beowulf would ever earn, the end of greatness and life together. The wound in his neck began to swell and grow. He could feel something stirring, burning in his veins, a stinging venom, and knew the beast's fangs had left it. He fumbled along the wall, found a slab of stone, and dropped down. Above him he saw huge stone arches and heavy posts holding up the roof of that giant hall. Then Vigloff's gentle hands bathed the blood-stained prince, his glorious lord, weary of war, and loosened his helmet. Beowulf spoke, in spite of a swollen, livid wound, knowing he'd unwound his string of days on earth, seen as much as God would grant him. All worldly pleasure was gone, as life would go soon. I'd leave my armor to my son. Now, if God had given me an heir, a child born of my body, his life created from mine. I've worn this crown for fifty winters. No neighboring people have tried to threaten the Geats, sent soldiers against us, or talked of terror. My days have gone by as fate willed, waiting for its word to be spoken, ruling as well as I knew how, <coughs> swearing no unholy oaths, seeking no lying wars. I can leave this life happy. 
I can die here, knowing the Lord of all life has never watched me wash my sword in blood, born of my own family. Beloved Vigloff, go quickly, find the dragon's treasure. We've taken <coughs> its life, but its gold is ours too. Hurry, bring me ancient silver, precious jewels, shining armor and gems before I die. Death will be softer, leaving life and this people I've ruled so long if I look at this last of all prizes. Then Vekstan's son went in, as quickly as he could, did as the dying Beowulf asked, entered the inner darkness of the tower, went with his mail shirt and his sword. Flushed with victory, he groped his way, a brave young warrior, and suddenly saw piles of gleaming gold, precious gems scattered on the floor, cups and bracelets, rusty old helmets, beautifully made but rotting with no hands to rub and polish them. They lay where the dragon left them. It had flown in the darkness once, before fighting its final battle. So gold can easily triumph, defeat the strongest of men, no matter how deep it is hidden. And he saw, hanging high above, a golden banner, woven by the best of weavers and beautiful. And over everything he saw a strange light, shining everywhere on walls and floor and treasure. Nothing moved, no other monsters appeared. He took what he wanted, all the treasures that pleased his eye, heavy plates and golden cups, and the glorious banner loaded his arms with all they could hold. Beowulf's dagger, his iron blade, had finished the fire-spitting terror that once protected tower and treasures alike. The gray-bearded lord of the Geats had ended those flying, burning raids forever. Then Vigloff went back, anxious to return where Beowulf was alive, to bring him treasure they'd won together. He ran, hoping his wounded king, weak and dying, had not left the world too soon. Then he brought their treasure to Beowulf, and found his famous king bloody, gasping for breath. But Vigloff sprinkled water over his lord until the words deep in his breast broke through and were heard, beholding the treasure he spoke haltingly. For this, this gold, these jewels, I thank our Father in heaven, ruler of the earth, for all of this that his grace had given me, allowed me to bring to my people while breath still came to my lips. I sold my life for this treasure, and I sold it well. Ah, take what I leave, Vigloff. Lead my people, help them, my time is gone. Have the brave Geats build me a tomb. When the funeral flames have burned me, and build it here, at the water's edge, high on this spit of land, so sailors can see this tower and remember my name, and call it Beowulf's Tower. <coughs> And boats in the darkness and mist crossing the sea will know it. Then that brave king gave the golden necklace from around his throat to Vigloff, gave him his gold-covered helmet and his rings and his mail shirt, and ordered him to use them well. You're the last of all our far-flung family. Fate has 
swept our race away, taken warriors in their strength and led them to the death that was waiting. And now I follow them. The old man's mouth was silent, spoke no more, had said as much as it could. He would sleep in the fire soon. His soul left his flesh, flew to glory. So we can see here a death, a solemn one, but also one, once again, marked with fear. Beowulf, in his last moments, is fearful that his race will die. This reflects current-day conspiracy theories, once again, about the Great Replace Replacement and Great Migration, ideas that populations of European cultures are changing. Oh, no, as if that's a bad thing. I mean, come on. <laughs> Clearly, things need to change here. But nonetheless, that's my perspective. Beowulf's is that his race is apparently dying, but that makes no sense. He not only is giving his kingdom to a person that he trusts, but he is also the leader of a kingdom. There's clearly a bunch of people in that kingdom. So what is he afraid of? Well, we have to talk about masculinity, but I don't want to get too deep into that before we finish the myth because we're quite close. So once we're done, we'll talk a little more about masculinity and specifically toxic masculinity, and why this myth is talking about it the way that it does. And then Viglaf was left, a young warrior sadly watching his beloved king, seeing him stretched on the ground, left guarding a torn and bloody corpse. But Beowulf's killer was dead too, the coiled dragon, cut in half, cold and motionless. Men and their swords had swept it from the earth, left it lying in front of its tower, won its treasure when it fell, crashing to the ground, cut it apart with their hammered blades, driven them deep in its belly. It would never fly through the night, glowing in the dark sky, glorying in its riches, burning and raiding. Two warriors had shown it their strength, slain it with their swords. Not many men, no matter how strong, no matter how daring, how bold, had done as well, rushing at its venomous fangs or even quietly entering its tower, intending to steal but finding the treasure's guardian awake, watching and ready to greet them. Beowulf had gotten its gold, bought it with blood. Dragon and king had ended each other's days on earth. And when the battle was over, Beowulf's followers came out of the wood, cowards and traitors, knowing the dragon was dead. Afraid, while it spit its fires to fight in their lord's defense, to throw their javelins and spears. They came like shamed-faced jackals, their shields in their hands to the place where the prince lay dead, and waited for Viglaf to speak. He was sitting near Beowulf's body, wearily sprinkling water in the dead man's face, trying to stir him. He could not. No one could have kept life in their lord's body, or turned aside the lord's will. World and man and all move as he orders, and always have, and always will. Then Viglaf turned and angrily told them what men without courage must hear. Vakestan's brave son stared at the traitors, his heart sorrowful, and said what he had to. 
I say what anyone who speaks the truth must say. Your Lord gave you gifts, swords, and the armor you stand in now. You sat on the mead hall benches, prince and followers, and he gave you, with open hands, helmets, and mail shirts, hunted across the world for the best of weapons. War came, and you ran like cowards, dropped your swords as soon as the danger was real. Should Beowulf have boasted of your help, rejoiced in your loyal strength? With God's good grace, he helped himself, swung his sword alone, won his own revenge. The help I gave him was a pittance, nothing, but all I was able to give. I went to him, knowing that nothing but Beowulf's strength could save us, and my sword was very lucky, found some vital place and bled the burning flames away. Too few of his warriors remembered to come when our Lord faced death alone. And now the giving of swords, of golden rings, and rich estates is over. Ended for you and everyone who shares your blood. When the brave Geats hear how you bolted and ran, none of your race will have anything left but their lives. And death would be better for them all, and for you than the kind of life you can lead, branded with disgrace. Then Viglaf ordered a messenger to ride across the cliff. I know I said I was going to get through all of this, but... I do want to note here that the dragon is a shadow. These monsters, and I don't want to talk about monsters more uh, after we finish this myth. We've talked so much about monsters. But I want to say one last thing as we're finishing this section on the dragon and going into the epilogue. The dragon is a shadow of the Vikings in the same way that Grendel and Grendel's mother are. That's not to say that they are not also anti-Semitic depictions and anti-pagan depictions or monsters representative of violence and greed and wealth and, well, femininity in Grendel's mother case, mother's case. They are also representative of how the Vikings, how the Norse, how the Scandinavians saw themselves. They recognized the brutality that they did unto other people the pillaging that they did. But they saw it as hard won, as something that they got by the grace of, quote-unquote, almighty God. Certainly at this period of time, but probably other deities such as Odin or Wotan, or Wotan, depending on how you, how you want to pronounce that word, um, in the past. So we can see here, in the construction of the dragon, a difference. The dragon is a thief. The dragon is referred to very similarly to how people on the outside would have understood the Vikings as a raiding, pillaging, horrific force coming at night swiftly by wing, by wing of uh, a, a sail, perhaps, on the water, destroying villages, burning them to a cinder, killing people indiscriminately, stealing their wealth and gold. The dragon is the Vikings, but a dark reflection of them that they cannot reckon with. They cannot recognize it. And so they differ it from themselves just enough to let themselves be the heroes, killing themselves, conquering themselves. Not literally, in the story. And if monsters are representations of what people believe is evil and what should be fought against, then it's pretty clear that the Vikings saw the evil that they were committing, but 
had to find a way to explain it away. The dragon are the Norse in this construction. So they push these ideas on other people. This is what we call the process of scapegoating. Now, let me ask you the question. Who in Europe were the most scapegoated? Pagans, Jews, Romani, Irish. Yeah, that's, that's probably the, the, a good list. There's others, but those are the most prominent examples of these people. Now, of course, the Norse have an interesting relationship with the Irish because of a whole number of reasons, but um, we, you can, if you want to learn about that, that's in the first episode of Beowulf uh, with the history of pre-Christian Scandinavia. Let's continue. Then Viglaf ordered a messenger to ride across the cliff to the Geats who'd waited the morning away, sadly wondering if their beloved king would return or be killed. A troop of soldiers sitting in silence and hoping for the best. Whipping his horse, the herald came to them. They crowded around, and he told them everything, present and past. Oh, our lord is dead! Leader of this people, the dragon killed him, but the beast is dead too. Cut in half by a dagger, Beowulf's enemy sleeps in its blood. No sword could pierce its skin, wound that monster. Figloff is sitting in mourning close to Beowulf's body. Vakestan's weary son, silent and sad, keeping watch for our king. There where Beowulf and the beast that killed him lay dead. And this people can expect fighting once the Franks and the Frisians have heard that our king lies dead. The news will spread quickly. Higlock began our bitter quarrel with the Franks, raiding along their river Rhine with ships and soldiers until they attacked him with a huge army. And Higlock was killed. The king and many of our men, mailed warriors, defeated in war, beaten by numbers. He brought no treasure to the Mead Hall after that battle, and ever after we knew no friendship with the Franks. Nor can we expect peace from the Swedes. Everyone knows how their old king, Ongentho, killed Hathsin, caught him near a wood when our young lord went to war too soon, dared too much. The wise old Swede, always terrible in war, allowed the Geats to land and begin to loot, then broke them with a lightning attack taking back treasure and his kidnapped queen, and taking our king's life. And then he followed his beaten enemies, drove them in front of Swedish swords until darkness dropped and weary, lordless they could hide in the wood. But he waited. Ongentho, with his mass of soldiers, circled around the Geats who'd survived, who'd escaped him, calling threats and boasts at that wretched band the whole night through. In the morning he'd hang a few. He promised to amuse the birds, uh, then slaughter the rest. But the sun rose to the sound of Heglock's horns and trumpets, light and that battle cry coming together and turning sad-hearted Geats into soldiers. Heglock had followed his people and found them. Then blood was everywhere, two bands of Geats falling on the Swedes, men fighting on all sides, butchering each other. Sadly, Ongentho ordered his soldiers back to the high ground where he'd built a fortress. He'd heard of Heglock, knew his boldness and strength. Out in the open, he could never resist such a soldier. Defend hard-won treasure, Swedish wives and children against the Geats' new king. 
Brave but wise, he fled, sought safety behind earthen walls. Eagerly, the Geats followed, sweeping across the field, smashing through the walls, waving Heglock's banners as they came. Then the gray-haired old king was brought to bay, bright sword blades forcing the lord of the Swedes to take judgment at Afor's hands. Afor's brother, Wolf, raised his weapon first, swung it angrily at the fierce old king, cracked his helmet, blood seeped through his hair. But the brave old Swede felt no fear. He quickly returned a better blow than he'd gotten, faced toward Wolf and struck him savagely. And Afor's bold brother was staggered, half raised his sword but only dropped it to the ground. Onginthos' blade had cut through his helmet, his head spouted blood, and slowly he fell. The wound was deep, but death was not due so soon. Fate let him recover, live on. But Afor, his brave brother, seeing Wolf fall, came forward with his broad-bladed sword, hammered by giants, and swung it so hard that Onginthos' shield shattered and he sank to the earth. His life ended. Then, with the battlefield theirs, the Geats rushed to Wolf's side, raised him up and bound his wound. Wolf's brother stripped the old Swede, took his iron mail shirt, his hilted sword and his helmet, and all his ancient war gear, and brought them to Heglock, his new lord. The king welcomed him, warmly thanked him for his gifts, and promised, there where everyone could hear, that as soon as he sat in his mead hall again, Afor and Wolf would have treasure heaped in their battle-hard hands. He'd repay them their bravery with wealth, give them gold and lands and silver rings, rich rewards for the glorious deeds they'd done with their swords. The Geats agreed, and to prove Afor's grace in his eyes, Heglock swore he'd give them his only daughter. These are the quarrels, the hatreds, the feuds that will bring us battles, force us into war with the Swedes as soon as they've learned how our lord is dead. Know that the Geats are leaderless, have lost the best of kings, Beowulf, he who held our enemies away, kept land and treasure intact, who saved Hrothgar and the Danes, he who lived all his long life bravely. Then let us go to him, hurry to our glorious lord, behold him lifeless, and quickly carry him to the flames. The fire must melt more than his bones, more than his share of treasure, give it all of this golden pile, this terrible uncounted heap of cups and rings bought with his blood. Burn it to ashes, to nothingness. No one living should enjoy these jewels. No beautiful women wear them, gleaming and golden from their necks. But walk instead, sad and alone in a hundred foreign lands, their laughter gone forever as Beowulf's has gone, his pleasure and his joy. Spears shall be lifted, many cold mornings lifted and thrown, and warriors shall waken to no harp's bright call but the croak of the dark black raven, ready to welcome the dead, anxious to tell the eagle how he stuffed his craw with corpses, filled his belly even faster than the wolves. And so the messenger spoke, a brave man on an ugly errand, telling only the truth. Then the warriors rose, walked slowly down the cliff, stared at those wonderful sights, stood weeping as they saw Beowulf dead on the sand, their bold ring-giver resting in his last bed. He'd reached the end of his days, their mighty war-king, the great lord of the Geats, gone to a glorious death. 
But they saw the dragon first, stretched in front of its tower, a strange, scaly beast gleaming a dozen colors dulled and scorched in its own heat. From end to end, fifty feet, it had flown in the silent darkness, a swift traveler tasting the air, then gliding down to its den. Death held it in his hands. It would guard no caves, no towers, keep no treasures like the cups, the precious plates spread where it lay. Silver and brass encrusted and rotting, eaten away as though buried in the earth for a thousand winters. And all this ancient hoard, huge and golden, was wound around with a spell. No man could enter the tower, open hidden doors, unless the Lord of Victories, he who watches over men, Almighty God himself, was moved to let him enter, and him alone. Hiding that treasure deep in its tower, as the dragon had done, broke God laws and brought it no good. Guarding its stolen wealth, it killed Viglaf's king, but was punished with death. Who knows when princes and their soldiers, the bravest and strongest of men, are destined to die? Their time ended, their homes, their halls empty and still. So Beowulf sought out the dragon, dared it into battle, but could never know what God had decreed, or that death would come to him, or why. So the spell was solemnly laid by men long dead. It was meant to last till the day of judgment, Whoever stole their jewels, their gold, would be cursed with the flames of hell, heaped high with sin and guilt if greed was what brought him. God alone could break their magic, open his grace to man. Then Viglaf spoke, Vakestan's son. How often an entire country suffers on one man's account! That time has come to us. We tried to counsel our beloved king, our shield and protection, show him danger, Urge him to leave the dragon in the dark tower it had lain in so long. Live there till the end of the world. Fate and his will were too strong. Everyone knows the treasure his life bought. But Beowulf was worth more than this gold, and the gift is a harsh one. I've seen it all. Been in the tower where the jewels and armor were hidden. Allowed to behold them once war and its terror were done. I gathered them up, gold and silver, filled my arms as full as I could, and quickly carried them back to my king. He lay right there, still alive, still sure in mind and tongue. He spoke sadly, said I should greet you, asked that after you'd burned his body, you bring his ashes here. Make this the tallest of towers and his tomb, as great and lasting as his fame. When Beowulf himself walked the earth and no man living could match him, Come, let us enter the tower, see the dragon's marvelous treasure one last time. All lead the way, take you close to that heap of curious jewels and rings and gold. Let the pyre be ready and high. As soon as we've seen the dragon's hoard, we will carry our beloved king, our leader and lord, where he'll lie forever in God's keeping. Then Viglaf commanded the wealthiest Geats, brave warriors and owners of land, leaders of his people, to bring wood for Beowulf's funeral. Now the fire must feed on his body. Flames grow heavy and black with him who endured arrows falling in iron showers, feathered shafts, barbed and sharp, shot through linden shields, storms of eager arrowheads dropping. And Vexton's wise son took seven of the noblest Geats, led them together down the tunnel deep into the dragon's tower. 
The one in front had a torch, held it high in his hands. The best of Beowulf's followers entered behind that gleaming flame, seeing gold and silver rotting on the ground with no one to guard it. The Geats were not troubled with scruples or fears, but quickly gathered up treasure and carried it out of the tower. And they rolled the dragon down to the cliff and dropped it over. Let the ocean take it. The tides sweep it away. Then silver and gold and precious jewels were put on a wagon with Beowulf's body and brought down the jutting sand where the pyre waited. A huge heap of wood was ready, hung around with helmets and battle shields and shining mail shirts, all as Beowulf had asked. The bearers brought their beloved lord, their glorious king, and weeping laid him high on the wood. Then the warriors began to kindle that greatest of funeral fires. Smoke rose above the flames, black and thick, and while the wind blew and the fire roared, they wept, and Beowulf's body crumbled and was gone. The Geats stayed, moaning their sorrow, lamenting their lord. A gnarled old woman, hair wound tight and gray on her head, groaned a song of misery, of infinite sadness and days of mourning, of fear and sorrow to come, slaughter and terror and captivity, and heaven swallowed the billowing smoke. Then the Geats built the tower, as Beowulf had asked, strong and tall, so sailors could find it from far and wide. Working for ten long days, they made his monument, sealed his ashes in walls as straight and high as wise and willing hands could raise them. And the riches he and Vigloff had won from the dragon, rings, necklaces, ancient, hammered armor, all the treasures they'd taken were left there too. Silver and jewels buried in the sandy ground, back in the earth again, and forever hidden and useless to men. And then twelve of the bravest Geats rode their horses around the tower, telling their sorrow, telling stories of their dead king and his greatness, his glory, praising him for heroic deeds, for a life as noble as his name. So should all men raise up words for their lords, warm with love, when their shield and protector leaves his body behind, sends his soul on high. And so Beowulf's followers rode, mourning their beloved leader, crying that no better king had ever lived, no prince so mild, no man so open to his people, so deserving of praise. And that's the end of Beowulf. Wow. There's a lot to talk about. And a lot of it we've already talked about. So we won't be covering too much in this final analysis. But I do want to note the way in which the Vikings, they pillaged this noble king's gold that had sat in the dragon's tower for a long time, that the dragon had taken. The dragon's taking of that is seen as, oh, such a bad thing. Like, obviously, this noble king that had lived before, that was his, not the dragon's, but it was just sitting there. Is not the, that the same thing that Vigloff and his warriors do at the end of this story? This is the way in which anti-Semitism, racism, and xenophobia work, as well as classism to a certain extent. They posit that people have different rules than those that are quote-unquote, below them, or different from them. The dragon is just playing by different rules than the Geats are. The Geats have the benefit of the doubt most times, unless they're cowardly. That's really the only time that the Geats are criticized at all in this story. And I get it. This is written by, ostensibly, the Geats. They really don't want to critique themselves, but 
I feel like we should have some room to recognize that not all people are good. And so that's why I critique it in the modern day, because we have to understand that, yes, the Geats were probably a very interesting people, probably had very interesting religion, and they did a lot of very important stuff. They invented things technologically. They, they shaped a lot of the politics that would go on in Europe for the remainder of uh, the modern history of Europe until probably like the Reformation. They are very influential and important in history, and I don't think we can forget that. But they were not good people. <laughs> and we shouldn't forget that either. This story is similar to a lot of other stories. It's a very classical Campbellian hero's myth. If you do not know the mythological scholar and anthropologist uh, Joseph Campbell, you should check him out. He is one of the few mythological scholars who I trust a lot of his takes. I really agree a lot with how he describes religion and mythology. I do take issue with a few of his beliefs, specifically about marriage, femininity, queerness, although he didn't really talk a lot about those things. And he also talks extensively about how religion should be open to change and how mythology is constantly changing. So he probably would have been fine with those things changing, hopefully. <laughs> Who knows, though? He's dead now, so... He died, I think, in the, in the early 2000s or, or late 90s. His ideas have shaped a lot of how I think about mythology. He has this theory that he primarily posited in a book called The Hero with the Thousand Faces, which is that throughout most of the world, most cultures, if not all cultures, I don't think he goes so far as to say all cultures, but a lot of people generalize it to all cultures these days, which is bad because... It's really easily disproved that way, but certainly a lot of cultures have this hero cycle. And they have a hero that continue, continuously has these different trials or adventures, either for entertainment's sake or to say something greater about strength and power in their culture, in their civilization. This often has a lot to do with masculinity. There is a heroine cycle that is sometimes referred to separately, and it does have a specific structure that is different than the hero's cycle, but those are generally more rare. We find a lot more hero's cycles because a lot of the people writing myths were men, and they were part of patriarchal societies, and they wanted to impart these ideas about war and conflict to their people. And to do so, they created a hyper-masculine archetype that we will call that we will call the Gilgamesh because Gilgamesh is like the uh, original form of this. And now that we have two heroes myths, two epics that we've we've actually covered, we can talk a little about what this hero cycle looks like and the differences between them at different times. Beowulf was written almost 3000 years after the writing of the epic of Gilgamesh. It's a long time. It's also written in a different place. But the similarities can be found. There are elements of grappling found throughout the myth. A preoccupation with death. A preoccupation with women and the emasculation by women. 
In the case of Gilgamesh, it's an emasculation more metaphorical, and it's more of an existential emasculation by Ishtar, or Inanna, the great goddess of Sumerian mythology, who wants to wed him, but by so doing, he recognizes that he would be messed up by it, and she'd not be true to him, which is a form of emasculation uh, in the construction of masculinity that existed at the time, as it was seen as, it would have been seen as horrible to be cheated on by a woman, but fine to have a uh, cheat on women yourself as a man, which is horrible and a double standard, clearly. But it also had to do with the way in which women existed at the time in that structured society, so there's big differences there. But let's focus in on the preoccupation with death, right? I'm not actually going to cover the uh, actual cycle itself today because that's a little bit more of a broad concept and we'll, we'll get there. And the Epic of Gilgamesh is known for not following this structure perfectly because it shifts halfway through and follows a very different narratological structure. So we don't, we, let's not boil it down just to, these are two hero cycles. It's not that simple. In Beowulf, this preoccupation of death can be seen most clearly at the end, where Beowulf recognizes that he's about to die, and he's saying, you know, do this, do that. He doesn't die from battle. He dies from a wound sustained in battle, a deception almost. This is similar to the venom that kills Heracles. We haven't talked about Heracles or Hercules yet, but same kind of idea. Although with Heracles, it's a much more obviously feminine uh, sort of aspect that kills him because it's Hera that sends down a, I think it's like a vest. I, it's been a long time since I've read The Death of Heracles because most of the time people only even talk about the 12 trials of Heracles, not the second part of the myth that involves the death of Heracles. This is often the issue with heroes myths is that people will remember the really entertaining parts in the beginning but they won't actually remember what happens at the end. And it's important to remember that a lot of the things you think of as hero cycles are really not in a classical sense. We oftentimes cite Star Wars as the ultimate hero cycle, but I disagree pretty heavily, which might put me at odds with Joseph Campbell because he actually advised in the production of the first two of those films uh, with story. Not He didn't do that much. He was just someone that George Lucas talked with uh, in, in the production of those films. Star Wars does not have this section about death anywhere, really, in it. Uh, it. It's really covering a very different concept and idea than heroes' journeys actually do. Heroes' journeys, especially these early ones, uh, the first ones recorded in a culture, often have, are composed of multiple myths, as we've seen many, many times. Uh, with early first recorded instances of a style of myth. So we have multiple different histories tossed in here, too many to count really. Uh, the battles with the Swedes, the battles with the Franks, or the Franks, I don't know how to pronounce that, that, that name. We also see multiple different monsters that are defeated. We see the monster of Grendel, the monster of Grendel's mother, the monster of the dragon. And all of these different stories seem to be collated into one somewhat coherent full story. Certainly, some of the random 
asides to history seem a little confusing to us in the modern day. That might be because of the distance to these events that we have. So when you hear of the Frisians, you're, you're probably going to be like, wh wh who are they? Where are they? What are they? What's going on? They're just a foreign people, essentially. And that's the best way to think of those uh, stories. And that's, way to think, that's the best way to think of those references, oftentimes. When you hear a name, you don't understand that it's clearly ref referring to a people. They're just a local people. And we might not know very much about them, honestly. I don't know anything about the Frisians. They were certainly people that existed. <laughs> Masculinity is another of these major ideas that is thought about within the hero's journey. And it is a very toxic one in Beowulf. I think much less so in the Epic of Gilgamesh. There are certainly toxic things to Gil Gilgamesh, but the very homoerotic friendship that is had between Gilgamesh and Ankidu offsets that a lot, as well as the sojourn that he has in the desert, thinking about death and how, you know, he, he is not going to be able to exist forever, how his world, his glory is not immortal. In Beowulf, on the other hand, glory is kind of immortal because it's continued on by other people. The idea is to almost force this masculinity onto others to take up the mantle, right? Vigloff in a moment becomes like Beowulf, not Beowulf, but like Beowulf. It is showing how a quote-unquote average person, an average man, can become a true man, which is the same kind of thing you see today in all sorts of media that has to do with men. But this is a fallacy because there is no such thing as a true man. Male-bodied people exist in all sorts of different ways. You cannot call the person that sings songs for a living and is not that built muscularly, you can't call them not a man if they identify as a man, right? In the same way, if someone is really, really built and looks like a manly man, but just doesn't like that term man, they might not want to be called man. Ever thought about that? Hopefully. <laughs> These ideas of masculinity are clearly constructed. That's pretty easy to figure out. You can walk around on the street without any knowledge of the people you meet, and you can figure out that masculinity is a constructed idea because there are people who are violent, there are people who are nonviolent, there are people who are interested in having muscles, there are people who are interested in not having muscles, right? Yes, I know I'm pronouncing muscles wrong. Uh, it's just kind of funny. We have so many different ways of defining masculinity, so why do we continue to define masculinity in the way that Beowulf does? Strength, a lack of cowardice, a willingness to kill, and high class. There is an association with masculinity and kingship, a divine right of rule found through battle, through death of others by one's hand. It's a pretty toxic idea, the idea that one must kill in order to become masculine, in order to be worthy of power. This is what we will see in a lot of other heroes' myths about men. It's a pretty consistent issue, and we're never really going to see a full conclusion to it. As we've seen in the modern day, there are constantly new action movies that ostensibly yeah, push the same ideas. And they're not good ideas, because here's the thing. If you want to be a violent person, that shouldn't be 
something that exists as a role in our society. Why should we have this violence? In the same way, why should cops be the only ones allowed to purvey this violence? Or uh, keepers of the land, let's call them. That's a little bit more of a historicized version of that. Right? There have been cops throughout history, and most of them have been quote-unquote manly men who want to uphold their masculinity via a course of violence. And let's not forget that the codes of chivalry were literally put in place because the knights were killing too many people. This is a consistent thing, either from the Vikings, the later knights that would be across most of Europe, or even the Roman soldiers that had been pushing these ideas previously. These ideas of masculinity are very tied with ideas found within colonizing countries or nations or civilizations. These ideas are linked. The hyper-masculine and hyper-feminine can be traced through the lens of the colonizer. You can see it. And it is much easier to see if you actually take this lens. Because it's clear that in more hunter-gatherer societies, men were meant to be strong and in a way kill, but it was seen as a necessary thing, not something that was done to gain one glory. Glory was not the goal. The goal was survival, subsistence. This is the case of all peoples at one point or another. And this is where we're going to end this podcast today, is my final point and perhaps the thesis for this entire three-part sojourn on the epic of Beowulf. All the people of Europe were once hunters and gatherers. You can go listen to that first episode of Beowulf and you'll listen to that history and hear that these people, they all act pretty similarly. Funnel beakers, corded ware, English, Irish, all of them are working in very similar ways. They are gathering and they are hunting. They are trading amongst each other. The conflict brought by Rome and the colonizing attitude, I don't know what happened, but it just infected a lot of people in Europe. There were, of course, people who were not interested in that, but they did not have much power because the Roman Empire created a power structure in these colonized outposts of theirs that benefited those that aligned themselves with them and aligned themselves with Christianity. That allowed for those powerful people to eventually become the kings and aristocrats of Europe. That means that the actual culture of Europe is extremely oppressed and has been for almost the entirety of recorded history in the region, if not the entirety of recorded history in the region, unless you count records from Roman people as being intrinsically European, which I don't really, considering the Romans were a syncretic blend of Trojans, Greeks, and other people that were much closer to the Near East and were not part of the larger tribal organizations of Europe at that time. They were very different in how they organized themselves. And we can see how that organizational structure was foisted upon Europeans, and it led to death it led to killing. It led to kings who wanted glory. And the way they achieved glory was by killing those who lived next to them. They did not abide by the one law that they needed to. They did not abide by their own beliefs. 
once they became Christian and fully uptook this idea of colonization, they decided to kill their neighbor. That's one of the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's a pretty serious thing if you're a Christian or a Jew for that matter. The Romans similarly messed this up too, but they obfuscated it. They skated over it by omitting certain, certain writings at the Treaty of Nicene, I believe it was. I don't know if that was in Rome or if that was a little later, though. I can't tell you exactly. But basically, Constantine I, the emperor who accepted Christianity and converted the Roman, Roman Empire to ideas of Christianity, to the beliefs of Christianity, reformed a lot of early Christian ideas which were, truthfully, pretty socialist. If you look at the Gnostic Gospels and other instances of Gospels that were stricken from the record of Christianity, you'll find a lot of people saying we should share everything and that kind of idea being pushed regularly. And, well, it's a Jewish idea ultimately as well. Uh, Us Jews believe in sharing most things and Christianity is an emanation of Judaism. I'm not saying that all Jews are socialists. Gosh, no. I happen to be a socialist Jew, but, you know, like, hey, that's me. And that I don't put that on everybody else. But I can't help but notice that my own people historically quite agreed with me in, in how we saw the world. And it, it's weird to me that there are fascist Jews these days, you know, in Israel. I mean, there are some real fascists that, that want to, like, kill Palestinians, ostensibly. I think it's horrible, and it, it, it's just, it demonstrates a modern way in which colonizing ideas get forced into, in, uh, in, onto a people when they are living on their own land, when they are given power for the first time, right? In this case, it's America instead of Rome, right? It's all the same stuff. It just keeps repeating, and we're going to keep seeing that as we go on. I don't want to spend too much time uh, discussing this because it is a very intense subject, And just keep in mind that when you notice these ideas of hyper-masculinity and power and fascism, they follow the colonizer. And they are very foreign from most everybody. Because here's the thing, the very first colonizers, we don't know who they were. Our earliest examples of colonizers come from the Assyrians and the Egyptians, but they probably were not the first to be colonizers. So who was it? We don't have record. We don't know. There's no one to blame but ourselves. And that's the scariest part about colonization, is that we're the ones who do it over and over again. And I'm talking about everyone on Earth. Because right now, right now on Earth, everyone has been colonized, either by Rome, by America, by Europe, everyone has been colonized at some point, other than like one tribe living in the Maldives, which I can't remember the name of right now. Because of this, we all have this communal experience of colonization. But similarly, because of the experience, we also have power structures that are representative of this colonizing structure that was positioned as the only way to enact power by those that colonized wherever we're talking about. These colonizers put in place these structures and then 
placed specific people within those structures that were sympathetic to either their cause or were willing to convert to their religion or etc. Just were puppets, basically. And it doesn't even matter now if who's in there is a puppet. hundred years later, it doesn't matter. Because once you put one puppet in there, it's much less likely that a people will rebel, that a people will actually re-implement a different power structure. Because once you have a structure that functions, because let's be honest here, colonization functions. It's not good to most people. It oppresses a ton of people, but it still functions. Functional systems are not necessarily good ones. And the functional systems that we see, especially in colonized countries today, are ones run by those that have bent the knee to the colonizer, the assimilated, those that are given money by the colonizer, those that have their interests with the people that are not their own. That is the reality of colonization, is that the people in power at first are run by the foreigner, but eventually, and we're starting to see it in places like the Philippines, Israel, uh, Belarus, lots of different locations, where we see these dictators popping up and becoming very, very powerful and spreading fascism. That fascism is colonization, make no mistake. They are one and the same. They are the same thing. The most disturbing thing is that a people can believe that they are doing what is right for their people when they are helping kill others, when they are helping destroy their people's culture slowly. This happens a lot. You'd be surprised at the number of people in powerful positions that are seeking to hurt their own people across the world. It's all over the place. Maybe it's just people being selfish. I don't know. Maybe it is greed. The people in power come from all sorts of different places. They come from different countries. But they have similar mindsets and methodologies to not only continue holding power, but to ensure that their people do not gain the amount of power that they want. The Jews are still oppressed today. And the stories that we tell, the monsters that we make, consider what they mean the next time you tell a story, you read a story, you listen to someone else telling a story. Those monsters mean something and they can be extremely damaging to people on as a whole. So, yeah, that's the Epic of Beowulf. I'm really glad that you've enjoyed, hopefully, listening to my musings on this myth and all of the ways in which these old stories in Europe are both really interesting and really, really bad in so many ways. We see a story that is beautiful and poetic and just so full of life and yet one that seeks to demean others and to kill them violently. This is the strange dichotomy of European culture throughout modern history. It's beautiful. It often has these moments of incredible beauty where you're just like, whoa, I can't even believe that that got made. Like when I read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I, I can't help but be like, whoa, that's so cool. It's one of my favorite books. But at the same time, it was written by someone who was so privileged to be able to not only do so, but to have the wealth and power 
that was just not allowed for so many people on Earth. We'll be getting back into myths that are not in Europe uh, for the next few because we've spent enough time on Europe. I wanted to spend less time on Europe. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, engaging in discussion within the comments, and sharing this podcast all over the internet. Along with this podcast, I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocain.com. That's www.echocain.com. Next episode, we'll be exploring the Nitsitapi, or Blackfoot story, entitled Woman Chooses Death. Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and now for the last word. Today's last word is... Wealth.